This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, uh, your journal for the American Federation of Medical Research. And we welcome you all as members and maybe some other listeners uh, to our podcast today. As you know, I do a monthly podcast, and it's based on a topic which we believe is most uh, appropriate for this time of the year, or perhaps something recently published in our journal. You may think I've been a little bit biased lately. We've had uh, colon cancer month last month, but it turns out this month is irritable bowel syndrome month. And uh, so I'm taking advantage of a little bit of a GI uh, uh, emphasis here, particularly when I'm fortunate enough to invite a national and international expert on the topic, and she actually is available and said yes. So that's a very good match. And even more for me is that she's a very good friend and someone that I've uh, been a colleague of for some times and whose work and research um, I've admired. And she's been a great leader for us in the irritable bowel world. So I'm going to introduce you to uh, Lucinda Harris, Lucy to me. Um, Lucy is an associate professor of medicine consultant in GI and hepatology at Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, associate professor of medicine there. Goes back to her days at um, University of Connecticut School of Medicine, uh, where she completed um, later an internship and residency in New York, Presbyterian Hospital of Columbia University, GI fellowship at New York uh, Hospital. Wheeler Medical College and Cornell University on the faculty there for a while uh, before moving uh, to the, well, I guess, great state of Arizona and the great weather of, um, of uh, Scottsdale. There in Mayo, she's been a past co-director of the Motility Group, has done a lot of work with patient support groups and irritable bowel syndrome and a current member of our activities uh, in her program, supervising GI fellows and visiting GI fellows and the fellowship committee. But we know also nationally, she works on our American Motility Society activities. She's the current president of the Phoenix GI Society and is actively involved in the American Gastroenterology Association whose meeting we have in a couple of weeks and she'll be very visible there. She's also a member of the uh, Rome 5 Criteria Age Committee activities, uh, women's health and directing uh, definitions of these different entities, particularly focused on uh, IBS, gastroparesis, chronic constipation, pelvic floor disorders, as well as celiac disease and autonomic dysfunction of the gut. Written extensively, many published uh, manuscripts, uh, a widely requested lecturer, um, and even today, uh, Lucy is up in Chicago at the annual meeting of the ACP, uh, dispensing some uh, important knowledge to our colleagues up there. So, Lucy, with all that hoopla, uh, let me officially welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. That was a very warm welcome. Thank you. Well, you know, you and I have been working with irritable bowel syndrome and other mysteries for years. I say mysteries because 
you know, you can still give your best talk at a major meeting on irritable bowel, even though it's been around since the ark, and I mean Noah's ark, but we're still wondering about what it's all about. And uh, for an old guy like me, um, I was thinking about this the other night, so I thought I'd, I'd sort of cut to the chase with you rather than go back to all those easy medical student questions, what is IBS and all this stuff. I'm going to ask you a little more, um, more penetrating questions to you so because you are the expert so when i see my patients and gi fellow says gee doctor another ibs patient and sort of look sideways i try to refocus him on the fact that we can offer a lot and do a lot and we we, we do tend to however see I, I tend to see a certain you know a certain um phenotype, uh, if you like, or a certain predictable pattern. And what I see is that uh, a female, uh, often with a past history of childhood and or young adulthood stress, even overlapping into physical sexual abuse, uh, ongoing high stress job, marriage issues often on the table, uh, sometimes even has been seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist for some support and it's invariably present somewhere in the picture and so i really re-encourage my fellows to now look at this patient not as a cpt code out there on the chart but look at her as a whole patient understand about her and this whole approach to the whole approach to the patient rather than just worrying about another um, ibs patient and i've I've, I've, I've become a little bit um, uh, disenchanted with some of the basic pathophysiology theories, and I like to approach the patient on this individual uh, personal approach to understand why we may have gone off the track and understand that, you know, in this world, 15% uh, of the world have irritable bowel syndrome. Some people think in the female population, 20%. So a lot of people have gone off the main road and I'm, I'm looking at ways to sort of bring them back and interested in your view from your long experience, you're a lot younger than me, but your experience um, of, you know, what sort of, uh, what sort of images are conjured up when you uh, tell your excited GI fellow, I'm going to go and see an irritable bowel patient. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell me a bit about things that you uh, you've noticed or that you've appreciated? All right. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, for years now, I, I started realizing, I think, 10, 15 years ago that we needed to take a, a broader approach to these patients. And I'll just start out with, you know, one basic concept, because not everybody in your audience does irritable bowel syndrome. We, we do define it as having... Um, pain associated with bowel dysfunction, either uh, constipation, diarrhea, or mixed bowel picture. Uh, and it should be present for at least uh, several months uh, and about six months before we diagnose it, but at least three months of ongoing symptoms. That comes from the Rome criteria. Um, there are a lot of mentors in, in my career, uh, particularly uh, doctors Drossman, Chang, and Che, who have also kind of influenced my approach. And 
uh, you know, back when I was just starting out my practice, I used to read about Dr. Drossman and, you know, I think he pointed us in the direction of taking a good uh, look at the psychological picture of our patients and, and assessing, you know, how anxiety and depression uh, were affecting that patient's GI symptoms. And, uh, helping us to realize that if we did address that, that that really was very important in helping patients. You know, um, Dr. Uh, Chang, I think, has been fundamental in helping us to understand the function of neuromodulators, the antidepressants, and uh, other medications, NSRIs, SSRIs, and um and the tricyclic antidepressants in, in helping the symptomatology and the perception of pain. And then Dr. Che has done a lot of work with, uh, with diet and putting the FODMAP, uh, low FODMAP diet on the map. But, you know, I think it's more than about that. There's also other research that's been done. There's research about sleep and it shows that if patient, if patients, um, don't sleep well, they have an increased perception or increased uh, pain. There's a research um, about stress and how that influences irritable bowel syndrome. And now there's a whole um, a wealth of knowledge about both uh, um, the uh, microbiome and the effect that that has in causing irritable bowel syndrome and about the diet. Uh, and I see this as also in my celiac population that even when they go on a gluten-free diet, um, they may still have intolerances to other carbohydrates and still have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. So I think, you know, I, when I talk to patients about irritable bowel syndrome, I talk to them about not only their bowel habits to get an idea of what their symptoms are and, and what medications I might use to uh, address their GI symptoms, but also helping them to understand that this is really a disorder that affects all realms of their uh, of their healthcare. And if they don't take a global view at approaching it themselves, then they don't do themselves the service that they that they should. And you know, and also I should mention exercise. There's also a body of a literature about yoga and exercise that also that helps to uh, modulate bowel function and improve irritable bowel symptoms. And I guess one last one last thing I'll, I'll point out is that there is a, an increased awareness of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. You know, I started. We have a uh, autonomic neurologist at our uh, institution. And I started to have all these patients coming billed as irritable bowel syndrome. They weren't necessarily referred uh, to him, but I started to look at their whole picture, you know, with hypermobility and um, having uh, po postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome and things that suggest mast cell activation disorder like flushing and mm -hmm. diarrhea, bloating, those kinds of symptoms. So I think those symptoms have also increased our awareness that we really need to not just talk about uh, GI symptoms because um, you know, Ehlers-Danlos patients have a lot of hypermobility. I'll, I'll stop there and let you. Uh... No, I, I think that's a good observation. I uh, recently saw a 
Now, a very well-known cardiac surgeon's wife here. Uh, he asked me to see her personally, and uh, you know, she's been going to ERs, and she says, you know, that one calls me irritable bowel, but I demand Benadryl when I go to the ER because I'm flushing, I've got a rash, I'm itching, got pyritis, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. And all that anti-cholinergic stuff doesn't help me. I, I love Benadryl. And so we got into the mast cell world and I put her on H1 blocker, H2 blocker and chromalin sodium and the diet. And uh, her husband thinks, you know, uh, I was, uh, she was born again. And so <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a real deal. I didn't get urine histamine levels and go to that extent. I didn't even get a serum tryptase in the ER because I didn't meet her in the ER, but uh, she came around very quickly. So, you know, I, I guess you could have colonoscoped and looked for mast cells in the, on the biopsies. Do you have much luck with that? Or do you, do you go with your clinical sense that this lady's got a mast cell issue and we need to uh, address that aspect of her um, of her life more than worry about all these uh, biopsies and stuff. Well, you know, mast cell uh, activation disorder is a challenging disorder and they're still in the process of trying to reach their clinical parameters and the testing is not as good as it could be. Um, I do sometimes do tryptase and urine studies, but uh, they, uh, if you read the literature on mast cell activation disorder, they'll tell you that a normal tryptase doesn't actually even rule out mast cell syndrome. Uh, and it certainly doesn't rule out mast cell activation disorder. And it's sometimes very hard to catch people when they're in the midst of an episode. Yeah. So I go more on clinical symptoms, but I do for academic purposes, sometimes do the urine and blood testing. Yeah. Well, I move on to another part that I was pondering the other night. So you mentioned the microbiota and this is something most of us wouldn't have thought about as a GI fellow that uh, we're treating an essentially chronic condition, although it can change teams from more diarrhea-ish to constipation-ish and move around the, the field a bit, but it, it's a chronic condition. And now we're treating it um, with two weeks of an antibiotic, specifically Zyfaxin or Rifaximin which would have been considered rather radical or unheard of uh, to physicians uh, as briefly as 15 years ago. Yet to some degree, as you know, this is becoming uh, integrated, almost cemented in the GI daily patient care of IBS uh, with really minimal objective evidence of changes or improvement in the target gut microbiota after the refactorment's treated. We have no data on a change in the microbiota world as far as its genesis or genesis uh, as far as its makeup and yet um, some people go on and exceed uh, the, the limit of three antibiotic repeated trials two-week trials in a year and they exceed that some people stay on it intermittently for months so i see a lot of uh, disarray creeping into the um, the microbiota revolution, if you like, some good, some hearsay. Um, what, what, how have you uh, 
adapted to the microbiota uh, uh, sort of irritable bowel syndrome component um, in your practice? And what do you teach the GI fellows as far as, uh, you know, what may be defendable and what may be, uh, you know, good for billing and practice, but it may not be good for patient care? Well, I think, you know, I think this mirrors our experience with Barry Marshall and Robin Warren and their discovery of Helicobacter pylori causing ulcer disease. I think that we, as gastroenterologists, really need to keep an open mind. Uh, I see evidence that a microbiome it can be very, uh, is a potentially um, big source of Seemingly, there's some. There's got to be some relationship between the microbiome and the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, and I think we're certainly in our infancy for understanding um, this discovery. I think there, you know, there are people out there, but um, you know, Mark Pimentel has recently described how he has found increased um, methanogens uh, as an, and there were possible relationship to. Uh, to IBS with constipation. And then there's also, he's found increased hydrogen sulfide uh, in breath tests. And that's related that to irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. So I think there's an emerging uh, picture here. And I think we all need to keep a, a micro, uh, an open mind. I'll, I'll also tell you a little anecdotal story that to me uh, demonstrates also the power of the microbiome and the brain gut uh, relationship. I uh, have a, had a patient, I still have him. Um, he was very interested in the microbiome because he had lots of symptoms uh, of bloating. And he actually had his symptoms after having um, two revisions of his Nissen fundoplication and a takedown of his fundoplication. And you know that um, that can predispose to uh, problems with vagus nerve and delayed gastric emptying. So he was always complaining about bloating. And he touched on, uh, he found the research that was being done on fecal transplants and the possible role that it could be helpful in irritable bowel syndrome. And he went and read online about, uh, I think there was a Canadian YouTube video on how to make your own uh, fecal um, uh, material for uh, intake so that you could uh, change your microbiome. But unfortunately, he, or, or fortunately, he took his daughter's stool and his daughter had a history of, uh, you know, severe anxiety and depression. And he had not had that history. He, he, and he did this transplant and I had to end up treating him actually for anxiety and depression, which also helped his um, increased visceral sensitivity. But it does point to the fact that there's this, a communication between the brain and the gut that influences pain sensation and probably may have some influence on anxiety as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree, although, you know, that the bowel transplant data to date has not been positive in IBS as far as blinded trials. Now, let me ask you another question, uh, given your gender, obviously this is um, close to home. Um, you know, 70% of IBS is dominated by females, depends 
where you go in India, where I guess females don't see doctors often, it's still got a male dominance, but most, most of the world's female dominant. But I'm actually being a little more, uh, a little different observation. My, my observation is that when I don't focus, when I focus on unexplained abdominal pain, uh, which is rampant, um, particularly cramping in nature and not related to PPIs and upper GI distress, but this is uh, colonically, abdominally driven. And I don't really focus on the bowel movement patterns, particularly. I'm seeing a lot of men, as many men as women actually, who fall into the mysterious abdominal pain world, whether it's stress related, meal related, maybe sometimes constipation related, but uh, they often uh, also have, uh, these people are typically under stress. I've actually seen the men return from military service. We have a base here in El Paso and uh, we see a lot of men who've been uh, deployed. And so I'd like to have you revisit this, um, this uh, gender debate on IBS and maybe give it a little more uh, of a broader brush. Well, I, I think what you are indirectly alluding to is our experience with uh, the post-Gulf War syndrome in uh, veterans that have returned from the, uh, the Persian uh, War. And in that population, there is definitely uh, a male predominance in all of the studies. And then that's probably because there are more men in the army still than women. But I think it also kind of maybe also because the majority of those patients, the reason that they developed their, their symptoms was they got some kind of GI infection. So I think it also gives strength to the fact that um, there is probably something that serves as a trigger in terms of the microbiome for inducing uh, this syndrome and men are not immune to it. Certainly there are effects that we know of of estrogens and progesterone on GI motility and sensation, but I don't think men are immune to uh, getting irritable bowel syndrome. And particularly if you um, add that situation to an extremely stressful situation. So I think there's probably not only a uh, microbiome uh, component to this, but perhaps a stress and anxiety um, part of this that cross reacts and you need to have both in order to develop irritable bowel syndrome. Well, Lucy, why don't you give me a little bit of um, something on your horizon? Uh, what are you uh, up to down there at the Mayo Clinic um, and your colleagues? You've got an interesting uh, little trials going on or an interesting little research uh, areas you're delving into. Do you want to give us a bit of a, an update? Uh, well, uh, we'll be doing some uh, research perhaps uh, in the future on uh, constipation, possibly um, in, in the area of neuros <clears throat> neurostimulation. But the other thing that I'm kind of excited to be doing, actually, uh, this kind of um, uh, uh, crosses over with my Rome work is that there is very little research on GI symptoms and the transgender population and process of changing gender. 
So we do have a big uh, transgender clinic in Mayo at Scottsdale. And so we're at the beginning of trying to plan some uh, research to look at symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome uh, in patients, you know, not only when going through the process of changing sex, but also uh, in the process before they go through that uh, sexual change. Mm. Interesting. Well, uh, we're very glad you could spare some time for us, Lucy, and I want to thank you on behalf of our audience. You always bring a, a very sort of, well, fresh, but very well organized and, you know, evidence-based approach, and we always appreciate that. And uh, I hope the colleagues at the ACP can benefit from your uh, knowledge base as well while you're up there, and I look forward to uh, seeing you down there in San Diego at some point in a few weeks. Yes, I, I look forward to that as well. Thank you again for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you. So colleagues, we're signing off with uh, Dr. Lucy Harris, Associate Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic, Scottsdale. And our topic today was irritable bowel syndrome, recognizing that this is irritable bowel month. I hope you find, found this very interesting. It's obviously a huge part of your practice. Certainly in GI, it's, as I said, it's, um, uh, it's seen every day, probably the commonest entity seen in a typical uh, clinical practice uh, in GI, but it's always changing. And as I said, we're learning something every day and probably the microbiota message is going to be around in some form. We'll have to learn exactly how to put it in perspective, but it's certainly in there and we're looking at small bowel infections that occur with diarrhea backgrounds and many people are doing breath testing to help uh, guide their therapy. So you'll be hearing more about that perhaps next year when I talk to Lucy again about the irritable bowel syndrome world. So I hope this has helped your colleagues. Please read our journal, Journal of Investigative Medicine. We just have our April issue came out. And I also want to recognize on my right hand here, uh, Isabella Guire. She's uh, been loyally keeping me focused on podcasts, among other things, for the last year or so. But unfortunately, not for her, but for me, she's taking off to the, um, the big city, going to New York, to Columbia University, to uh, move into the medical school. Well, she's a nurse, perfect credentials to be a doctor, and uh, we're going to be interestingly following her career as well. So Isabel, on behalf of the AMF, AFMR, particularly myself, uh, wish to thank you for all you've done for our organization. And um, we wish you the very best in your new, uh, new stage of your career. Thank you. So colleagues, that's it. We'll see you next month. Uh, all the very best. Signing off. Bye-bye.